Hello everyone and welcome to The Other Web. Our guest today is Professor Kai Marcus Müller, who teaches consumer behavior and pricing theory at the HFU Business School in Germany. We reached out to Professor Müller to explore what kind of price free is and what it does to our brains. Professor Müller, welcome to the show. Hi Alex, thank you for inviting me. All right, thank you for coming. I saw you have some really interesting research on pricing. And so I immediately wanted to ask you, what do you think it does to us when the price of products is free? That's a great question because basically our mind can think in two ways. We can think the standard economic way, or we can think in the like the Stone Age way of give and take. Um, like imagine um, I help my cousin move. A, a day, right? Like, you know, move his furniture around. Um, then I do this because I like my cousin. But imagine he were to say, well, you know, let me give you at least minimum wage. That would be very odd, right? So in that case, we would suddenly be no longer in a, in a family or, or friendly uh, interaction, but we would be in an economic interaction. And in that case, that would be really rather, rather odd, right? So in this case, if you said, you know, well, I'll, I'll invite you to barbecue in exchange, that is something else. But um, you see that our mind is somewhat trained to either think in the um, economic exchange mode or in the mode of um, give and take, like we have been doing um, all the millions of years before official money existed. Right. So that actually reminds me, I think my daughter's daycare has this policy where if you're late, you're supposed to pay $2 per minute of being late. And I think it causes parents to not feel bad if they're late. They're just paying for a service, right? Whereas if there was no fine, then they would just feel bad and try not to do it. That actually has been studied scientifically. Exactly that question in the daycare. And it has turned out that it really, that, that people suddenly don't feel responsible anymore for being on time, but they feel like, okay, they're paying something for it. So it's basically okay. And uh, that's, that's absolutely an, an interesting observation. And that basically shows us that something that's for free is just, is just different. And you can also use different psychological mechanisms to to trigger whatever you want or need in your customer or consumer. So that leads us to, I think, one of the most obvious questions in the world today, which is that most of the products that determine what information we consume are technically free, whether it's browsers, search engines. There's a lot of things out there that we don't pay for except in some indirect way or, I guess, with our time. Is there a danger in that? And if so, how can we manage that? Well, uh, there's a famous saying. Honestly, I don't know who to quote here, but uh, the saying goes like this. Uh, if you don't pay for the product, you are the product. So that is what most people are not aware of. Well, it's, it's actually sometimes shocking, even, even business students in the first, second, third semester, if you ask them, how does an online newspaper work and how they make their money, they, they don't know. So um, they don't understand that, uh, that 
they are being sold, that their data is being sold, their, their advertising space is being sold and so forth. And, uh, you know, if business students only grasp this after a bunch of years of studying, they'll, how, how shall any normal consumer recognize that? Um, now, is it dangerous? I, I'm not sure because sometimes you know, people might not, might not mind that they're being advertised. For example, they might not mind that an algorithm figures out that they like X. I don't know that somebody who likes skiing is being shown skiing advertisements and somebody who likes, uh, I don't know, fancy shoes is being shown shoe advertisements. It might be actually worse the other way around indeed. So it's a question, you know, how bad is it really? It, it's good to be aware of it. And the other side, uh, the other question is like, how bad is it really? Um, that really depends on the circumstances. Yeah, and if you've looked at what I tend to work on in my day job, you know that my main concern is not whether the guy who likes skiing sees advertising for skiing, but mm -hmm. whether the desire to show him more advertising for skiing is going to make the people who write the content write something else entirely than they otherwise would have, right? So it's not just that content includes ads, it's that once content is monetized with ads, the content itself changes. Now we're thinking, okay, how does the ad pay? It pays per click. So let me write content that generates more clicks, right? Or it pays per view. Let me write content that people tend to glance at more. And it seems like the content itself is changing. I don't know if there's an economic way to price that, but it seems somehow pernicious. Yes, absolutely. Um, I've even seen that with various newspapers they adjust the headline so they get more clicks. Like, you know, if you, if you happen to see an article the first few minutes, you recognize an hour later that article suddenly got a different headline because obviously some algorithm determined that potentially a different headline is better, or maybe somebody who knows a lot about human psychology. Um, and better in that respect is really only better in terms of, of clicks. And, um, that, of course, creates a, a, a psychological danger, just the famous, you know, to some degree, the famous bubble that we all live in. Um, we click on those things that we like or that speak to us or that annoy us anyway. And so um, I, I don't even want to make any, any political statement here, but I think it's pretty obvious that, you know, if you are more of a liberal person, you may be clicking more on the liberal clickbaits if you are more of a socially conservative person, you click on the socially conservative clickbaits. If you are, I don't know, religious, you may click on religious clickbaits, etc. So, so there's, um, there's clearly a, a, a tricky problem here because it potentially increases the divide. Yeah, so I'll give you another interesting example, which I'm not sure if it exists outside of the US, but I suspect it does. Not only do people from the right tend to click on headlines that are right-wing and people from the left tend to click on headlines that are left-wing, but the more extreme left-wing politicians tend to be mm -hmm. popularized by right-wing outlets because it gets their readers outreach and vice versa. So let's say Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, right? She is a hero of Fox News, 
she's almost never mentioned on CNN. On the other hand, Marjorie Taylor Greene is a hero on CNN and MSNBC. She almost never appears on Fox News. And so not only do we create bubbles, but we create bubbles that make the other bubble look especially bad. Yes. Different media have different income sources. And when your audience basically clicks always on some scandal, which is most likely happening on the other side or some something that makes you be outraged, uh, then that is what you report about. Now in Germany, we have the public media houses. However, I am a little skeptical that they work in any other way compared to the private media houses. They also have their, their, their clickbaits and they want their clicks. They need to justify their existence somehow. So they somewhat need to do something to keep their readers clicking. All right. So let me see if we can find a solution to this by bringing it back to the pricing question. Because it seems like everything that we've just discussed is sort of built on top of the problem of free. But is there a solution within the free paradigm? Like to throw something out there, can we just add a factor to the advertising payout formula that says quality of the underlying page has to somehow determine how much the advertiser pays? Or is that a non-viable solution and we have to actually price the product itself? which is articles, information, things like that. So I think there is quite a consumer group that says they want to be informed independently. They want to get good journalism. The problem is we are, of course, always all human and we still can fall for clickbaits at any point in time, especially if you spend your time on places like uh, Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, that uh, then you can't avoid it. In, in Germany, you do pay for the public radio stations and the public TV stations. Um, and back in the days, everybody could only watch these two, three TV programs and uh, listen to these few radio stations. And it, it's an interesting thing because my impression is back in those days, they were quite balanced. And uh, with the more competition, the more private competition they got, the more they became somewhat leaning towards uh, certain political stances. So I, 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 can't, I can't right now really find a, uh, off the top of my head, find a solution to have a really, uh, a really balanced media outlet Surely what helps is if you are going to pay for uh, newspaper access that gives that entire uh, newspaper a new credibility or that entire um, media outlet. Yeah, the more something's free, the more you are probably also, um, well, just simply the going down those various rabbit holes, which is by the way, not, not something that is very pro productive and it's not, it's not good for your well work output or even for your satisfaction at the end of the day. You've, you've read a lot of lots and lots of articles or lots and lots of complete nonsense by random strangers that shouldn't be of any relevance to your life, but they do 
become relevant in many people's lives. Well, these, our brain certainly can't tell the difference between whether we're angry because somebody stepped on our foot or we're angry because we read an article that someone somewhere in a different country stepped on somebody's foot. I think our brain reacts the same way. In a very similar way, indeed, that is called the mirror neuron system. So there are nerve cells in our brain that react very similar to, say, when um, I burn my finger and I see you burn your finger, for example, then there, there's a bunch of, of networks in the brain that really react very similar in my brain in that case. Okay. So I want to ask you one more question on the free pricing angle, but mm -hmm. to step away from media for a second, because yeah. it's not a problem only in media, it seems like. It. I'm currently using a browser to mm -hmm. run this program that we are talking through. The browser is free. Now, obviously, developing the browser costs a lot of money. So mm -hmm. the company that made the browser has to make its money back somehow. It seems like the way that browsers are really monetized is using search engines, which are kind of shoved down our throat along with the browser when we download it, right? And you can peel the onion going back many, many layers, and you'll see that the company that makes the most money from search engines has the leading browser and the leading operating system for mobile, at least. And it's even an ISP in the US. And it's paying a lot of other companies to have its search engine as the default and its browser as the default in the system. So we're having a lot of these products that are bundled together, most of which are free because one product pays for it all. Is that a healthy situation um, for us as consumers or does it basically eliminate our ability to choose based on what something actually costs? I think many people are not aware of that. You know that, uh, I know that, and maybe many of our listeners know what we talk about, but clearly many consumers don't know and don't care, and uh, it's, it's, it's way too many layers and too complex for them to think it through. So is it healthy? There, There is a danger. There is a danger of you spending too much time online um, and by definition, the, you know, any, any algorithm that optimizes your behavior for clicking will develop into a tool that is somewhat addictive. I think I'm trying to take this in the direction where even if it's more benign than that, it still seems like an odd distortion of our decision-making mechanism. So let me use a different example that perhaps you're familiar with the best chatting tool for people in the same workplace is Slack. Everybody knows it's Slack. Everybody uses Slack. Except if you compare it to Microsoft Teams, it seems like Microsoft Teams has five times the user base that Slack does for the sole reason that it's free and included with Microsoft Office. Now, we all know it's not really free. Microsoft acquired Yammer for a lot of money, right? And therefore, they're obviously trying to make some of that money back. They rebranded it, right? But it's not free. They increase the price of the entire package, obviously, to include that in the package, right? So we're all buying it, but we have no ability to price it as a standalone. And therefore, we use the free thing instead of the better product that is paid. So is it possible that once you kind of extrapolate that into other industries, we're all potentially using a whole bunch of substandard products because products aren't priced properly? That is absolutely possible. So these locked-in effects, they are being 
discussed in pricing departments. I can tell you, I've spoken to many pricing managers. Locked in is a, is a big topic. So whatever you have decided, if you manage to lock in someone, it's, um, it's very, very, uh, very strong. And, and I, I'll give you another example from my own life. I live in Stuttgart, Germany, greater Stuttgart. And uh, down the road here is, well, there are actually two, two of the world's uh, leading luxury car brands. And I had developed something very cool, a tool to measure perceived value based on reaction times, uh, as well as a, another tool to measure perceived value of in entire cars or, or anything you like, any add-on uh, based on brain scans. And that's a very strong sales pitch. Now, the tricky thing with at least one of these two major car brands was that they basically outsourced their entire marketing research to one of the great players in the market. And it, it was basically impossible as a small startup to, to sell to them. One had to go, basically, I had to go to the big market research player and say, look, um, how about, uh, you know, you sell this to them. Now that again makes it uh, uh, tricky because then they also think about their own product, which is just, just the same story of, of Slack and Teams. So um, that, that is a problem and that is primarily a problem in, in big companies, but um, well, my, my story is a, is a prop, was a problem for big companies. The thing with, with teams is, is, is generally, it's generally tricky because say, for example, also my university already offers Microsoft products to everyone. So occasionally using teams for whatever you need it is, is the, of course, the, the, the option of choice and not Slack. And I, some could argue that that is the reason Slack had to sell itself. Right, because they couldn't compete as an independent company. Yes, yes. When the competitive product to them is being bundled with something that everybody must have, which is Microsoft Office, right? That is indeed, um, that is the curse of many startups in many new technologies. You know, if, if you have trouble bundling it, and as a founder, it's potentially sometimes the right thing to exit before, before someone else just develops a thing you've developed and, and yeah. You, you, you have no choice. Right. So I am okay with the plight of the founder in this case. I'm just thinking whether it would benefit society as a whole if everybody actually chooses the best product in each category, as opposed to having to navigate these odd bundles mm -hmm. of, okay, this one has a good word processor. It comes with really mediocre video chatting, right? Mm -hmm. And an even more mediocre uh, workplace chatting or IRC like chat, right? Yeah. It seems like if we could choose the best in each category and then just get the fair price at the end somehow, then everything that you study in economics 101 mm -hmm. with the supply demand curves and how prices are determined would actually become true. But right now it seems to be pretty far from reality. Sure. And, and the same, the same goes for media articles. Uh, that's something I've been wondering for a long time. I'm not exactly sure. Can you maybe just uh, clarify for all the listeners, um, maybe also my listeners, when I when I post this thing, how the other web works, so that uh, yeah, we we can dive into that. Sure. So our our approach to it is we scrape 
content from a bunch of different sources. And the content is not just news, right? It's news, commentary, podcasts, research studies, everything we can get our crawlers on and that we're allowed to screen, right? And then we use uh, natural language processing uh, models to filter out things that trigger obvious red flags. And then for everything else, we try to give as much control as we can to the user. So some things try to learn implicitly what your preferences are, but for just about everything, you can go in and manually change it. So if we infer that you're really interested in electric vehicles and not interested in the British royal family, and you disagree, you actually have a slider that says more British royal family and less electric vehicles, right? Um, we also do the same with emotions, but that's experimental. We rolled it out about a month ago, mm-hmm. um, where we classify an article based on which emotions it's likely to trigger in readers. Mm-hmm. And then we learn over time which emotions you actually enjoy receiving from articles. But you can go in and change that. So if for some reason you always swipe right on infuriating stuff, mm-hmm. but then you look at your own settings and you see, oh, the program learned that I really like infuriating articles, but I actually don't want to see too much of that, right? You have a way to change that. Mm-hmm. Whereas on other social media, if that's what TikTok decided you like, right, then you're getting all the infuriating stuff in the world. Mm-hmm. So that's our approach. Um, yeah, we want to see where else we can take it. I think the idea eventually, and why I mentioned the advertising pricing model, is that I think starting from the consumer side and helping consumers just select what they want to consume in a more efficient way is good, but it's possibly not enough. And we would also want to go into how content is monetized, how it's created, help creators filter out what they put out into the world before they put it out. Um, help, help advertisers put their ads on higher quality content instead of anything that can generate clicks, right? Um, and maybe that will create incentives for everybody to actually pull up uh, because right now it seems like everything is getting pulled down by the sort of race towards more clicks. Mm-hmm. Hopefully that answers your question. So here's, yes, yes, because uh, something that I've thought about for for quite some years is oftentimes I'm interested in articles from various newspapers, just, you know, it, 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 it's good to read, not just one, one side of the story, read various newspapers, may these be international ones or German ones from all sides of the spectrum. But I'm, I'm not willing to pay subscriptions to 25 newspapers, right? Although maybe on average, I, I'm browsing, I don't know, maybe not 25, but maybe 10 or so I'm, I'm regularly browsing, um, and so something I, I would be interested in would be paying by, by the article, like relatively low fee, but pay by the article. Now that is, is probably not as good as what you suggest because it, it, it's of course, then it's even designed more to clickbait, right? Then, then the, the article is, is going to be having a very spectacular headline. And, and I, I caught myself actually subscribing to one of the other newspapers because I really, really, really thought this is an article I need to read. And, and then I read it and it was like <laughs> very disappointing. So, so I have to mention like what you mentioned, that is essentially the original iTunes model for songs, yes. right? Yes, exactly. Where instead of buying the entire, the entire album, you would buy a single song. Yes. Now you might know that Apple News does not use that model. Instead, they use the Spotify model of 10 bucks a month unlimited, mm-hmm. right? I suspect that's because they discovered that if they try to sell news by the article, 
then the stuff that rises to the top is even worse than the stuff that is rising to the top right now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But again, I can't mind read Apple. I just suspect that since they've already used this business model, they've evaluated it before choosing their current one. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I should also give them props, right? I think that the Apple News model uh, is completely reasonable and also better than the way news works now. I I still suspect that it only appeals to the small subset of users Mm -hmm. that is willing to pay for something that is otherwise free, right? So that's probably not most users in the world. It's going to be a somewhat elitist product almost by definition. Yeah. but it's still better than what we have as a default right now. Indeed. So I guess, are there any ways in which entrepreneurs building products can optimize both their products and their pricing for good in some sense? What are some more general recommendations that you might have for us? Well, generally, many entrepreneurs feel like they need to sell as much as possible, which is for depending on if it's a really an internet product or a platform product, it's, it's probably important really to, to sell as, as, as much as possible and increase the user base so that your platform works. But for many other products, which are not uh, platform based, but any consumer good or, or even computer programs or whatever, oftentimes you lose out on a bunch of very important opportunities. If you start free, it's very hard to upgrade to paid. So uh, to some degree, you, you train your customer base to become bargain hunters and you, you are attracting those people for which the free is extremely important. And from a entrepreneurial perspective or from a pricing perspective, I would even say these are exactly the customers you don't want. You don't want the people that are not willing to pay anything. That's, that's a disaster, basically. That's, that's a, a tricky thing. And it's therefore oftentimes easier to go down in prices than uh, to go up, which you can, for example, you take the Apple example again that you, you have just given. All their devices start very expensive. And even when Steve Jobs introduced the iPad, he started with a huge anchor and said, actually, this thing is worth a thousand dollars. And he kept talking and talking. But because it's so important that everybody gets it and it's so valuable, we sell it for just 500. <laughs> um, so th- there, there you can see. You, you can go down, but you can't go do this the other way around, right? You can say this thing is just five, 500, but we sell it for thousands. It won't work. Um, and the other way that uh, many of these um, cell phone providers work is that they come up with a new model and they skim the market. And then over time, they reduce the price so that um, other consumers also buy it that have a lower willingness to pay. Um, so that is... From an entrepreneurial perspective, if you think about your own revenues and your own, uh, your profitability, then that is, that is relevant, relevant to, to, to keep that in mind. Um, your question was also, can we use pricing to, to do something good? Um, here, uh, here are two examples that just come to my mind that are both based on scientific studies. The first one is food doesn't taste 
as good as it can when you sell it for cheap. That's been, for example, done with wine or with, with hot chocolate. Um, stuff tastes worse when you say it's a cheap wine or it's a, a cheap, cheap hot chocolate. Um, the other thing is uh, even more fascinating painkillers. Expensive painkillers work better than inexpensive painkillers. So you can indeed use pricing to, to do something good and to, to help people elevate their own placebo effect. <laughs> um, and um, design things in a way that, that change people's perceptions. Now, it's a fine line because if something doesn't work as expected and people paid a lot, the Oracle also can make them angry easily. So, as I said, it's, it, it, it is a fine line and it needs to be an overall coherent story. Yeah, I've, I've seen some interesting experiments done with black t-shirts or something that's really plain. And if you take a whole bunch of black t-shirts priced from, let's say, $4 each to $200 each, then most people can tell which ones are the medium quality ones, the $20 t-shirt, but they can't tell the difference between the $4 and the $200. It's basically the same thing. <laughs> so clearly the mm -hmm. Hermes, Dolce & Gabbana, all the most expensive brands, they basically just buy the cheapest thing they can and stick a brand on it. I don't know if that's a sustainable business model or if that can be qualified as providing good. I'm sure the people who buy it think they are enjoying it. <laughs> but did you actually deliver some goodness to them? You know, I, I cannot uh, speak for other people here. If, if somebody enjoys X, then let them do X. Um, I'm, I'm, I, I, I'm actually, you know, morally, I'm, I'm fine with that when, when somebody really thinks they need an Dolce and Gabbana shirt or they need to, they need to drive an expensive Porsche. You know, somehow there, there's a lot, you know, there's a lot of quite a heterogeneous distribution of money out there in the world. And if some people bring it back to society by, <laughs> by providing jobs for, I don't know, the, people working at Porsche or at uh, Lamborghini, then I'm, you know, I, I don't have a moral problem with them, you know, do, doing that or wearing a Hermes shirt or shoe or, or whatever. Yeah, I, I'm not thinking about the moral aspects as much from, let's say, the person buying it. Obviously, they're paying for an experience of some sort, right? I'm just yeah. thinking if as an entrepreneur, I'm starting a company with the purpose of delivering good to the world, that is probably not what I'm after <laughs> or not what I should be after. I, if I am to charge a premium price, I want to actually make sure that the product is substantially better in some way. Like to use a more, I guess, not quite down to earth example, right? But private flight is a lot more expensive than commercial flights, right? But there is mm -hmm. a reason it actually saves you a lot of time. So if you make a lot of money and... Yeah. Obviously, your time is then very valuable because per hour you make a lot of money. Yes. Then being able to save two hours every time you fly international because the USCIS agent comes to your plane as opposed to you going to them and standing in line, that's worth it, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not there, just saying. But as an example, that's something that is worth money for people. It's fair value. Whether a brand name on a belt is fair value, I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around that. Well, 
maybe, maybe not. You know, it's uh, imagine you know that piece of clothing boosting someone's confidence, and they feel good, and they go party and feel like feel like they're the, the, the life of the party all night. They maybe or may not be, but at least they go home with that feeling saying, oh, I was the life of the party and everybody checked out my belt. Maybe maybe it's good for them. Um, it, it, it may be a general question. Is that attitude towards life something that makes you happy? But uh, if you are in that situation, you know, it's uh, it's not me to judge to judge that. It's tricky. It's 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 tough to say, really. All right, so I want to cover one more angle of this, which is: let's say that I, as an entrepreneur, am trying to figure out whether to provide a product for free or to make it pay. Mm-hmm. If I have existing, somewhat similar, maybe not even direct competitor, but similar alternative products that are free, how can mm-hmm. I possibly convince my user to buy the paid version when something free exists out there? The first thing you need to understand as an entrepreneur is nobody knows the market just as good as you do. You know the exact entire market. And yes, of course, you know that someone out there somewhere in the world offers something comparable at a potentially either cheaper price or for free. Many consumers and even professional customers don't don't think like that. They have oftentimes very different motives. Um, even I, you know, this in the professional B two B sale is, is this this famous saying: nobody ever got fired for hiring IBM, or nobody ever got fired for hiring McKinsey. Well, you know, whatever McKinsey or IBM deliver, you can find a cheaper alternative, or you can just look up your advice for free on the internet these days. But people aren't, aren't paying for that. You know, people are paying for different things when they hire McKinsey. They are paying for justifying their move, uh, before the board or something like that. You know, it, it, it is a different, oftentimes a different motivation. And if you look at the pure value that uh, a consultancy delivers, probably it's always, there's always a, a cheaper consultant that is just as smart and just does also good work. But, um, that brand name that comes with it does have a, a huge, um, a huge weight. And that is just a different, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a different aspect of the entire equation. When you think about customers, the first thing you should think about is don't put the price in the middle, put the value in the middle, the value that you deliver. And the same thing also is important for the entrepreneur themselves for you for your mind you have to make you have to understand that um nobody knows the market as good as you do and people may see very different value in specific services that you as a platform or as an as an entrepreneur deliver that other things just simply cannot keep up with or or they're not on the radar I've run a very interesting study for a client in the insurance business a few years ago. Um, That was an insurance they sold through brokers. So people that professionally sell insurances. And we tested whether there was a price threshold for 100 euros per year of a specific insurance. 
What does that mean? So the idea here is that when you are charging less than 100 euros, people are going to buy it and uh, up to 99, you know, these famous 99 uh, prices and then starting at 100, the idea was, well, nobody's going to buy this anymore. It turns out that uh, we tested 40 consumers with an EEG brain scan and we checked if there was a threshold in their brain at 100 euros. Well, um, interestingly, there was no threshold. So yeah, you would lose a few customers probably when you would go up uh, with, with prices, but it wasn't as bad. It was no way in the consumer's mind, no way as bad as the, the, man, the board of the management at the insurance company thought it was. So they tested this in the field. We sat, I, I told them, don't worry. You know, we made even brain scans. We tested this data. It's foolproof. Um, consumers are willing to pay that and uh, just try it out. They tried it out with a few consumers, tested different risk profiles, tested higher prices. They got back to me and said, you know what? Interesting. You have done a fantastic job up to 99 euro. Any prediction you made has, is very, very, has very small margin of error, but there's a big price threshold at a hundred. People don't buy this anymore at a hundred euros. So what we did in a second study, we tested the brokers. And the brokers actually had a price threshold in their brain. So it turns out that insurance didn't sell anymore because the salespeople didn't believe in the price and the value of the product. And that explained the market actually then above 100 euros, obviously much better than um, the, uh, the potential target group and the consumer's mind. Here's something. Oftentimes... You know too much about your market. You know too much about what you, what you offer and you feel like that that is like that for everyone. But there's a simple trick. Think about markets you don't know. Think about how much do you know about what it costs to run a hairdressing salon? How much does it cost to bring that jeans to your local store? that you wear, how much does, uh, I don't know, this microphone cost that I'm speaking into right now. I, I have no idea, very little ideas about any of these markets, you know? So I don't really know what, what it really costs to bring the jeans to my local store or what, what it costs to get this microphone delivered to my doorstep. I am trying to find the best microphone. I've been looking at a few reviews and at some point I decided to not go with a uh, with a professional TV station microphone, but also not with a cheap microphone. I just got, went with something that sounded reasonable somewhere in the middle for a, some someone who regularly attends podcasts. <laughs> and and I have no idea I, because I am not an expert in the microphone market. So that's, that's the thing, you know, the consumer oftentimes is much, much less well-informed than and the salesperson and the salesperson or the entrepreneur, they, of course, it's their job. They need to know their market. And, and you are in a market that you know exactly well. I'm in a market that I know very well. But, but in the end, um, we, uh, this, these are very, very specific niches that we are in. And the broad consumer base or customer base we speak to and we want to sell our services to or our products to, for them, it's just one in hundreds of things that they buy. So the most optimistic version of what you just said 
is that we can use the consumer's ignorance to deliver good to them without them knowing. Oh, that's a very nice way of putting it. I love it. <laughs> All right. Um, and I love to end on an optimistic note. So I think we will uh, end on that one. I want to thank you so much for joining us, Professor Miller. It was a pleasure. And uh, I'm sure we'll get to talk again. Absolutely. Thank you so much. If you're interested uh, in me, follow me on LinkedIn. Um, and um, I'm looking forward to speaking again. Bye-bye. Absolutely. This has been another episode of The Other Web. Join us next time for more discussions about news, media, and the information ecosystem as a whole.